Today's scripture reading will be from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. If you want to look it up in your Bibles, it will also be displayed uh, behind me. And God's word says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is he who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of this servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. You may be seated. Well, if you wouldn't mind, can we pray one more time before we open up God's word together? Heavenly Father, uh, we ask that everything that could distract us this morning, that you would give us the power to tune it out, that you would give us the power to tune in to your word and how you are speaking into our lives. Lord God, I pray that each one of us would be able to leave this place having been affected by your word. Lord, our, our hearts desire is to draw closer to you. Lord, we ask that you would show us how to, how to draw nearer to you with the way we live. Lord God, how to worship you with everything that we are. Father, I ask that as I speak that you would be pleased to guide my words. And I lean hard upon you. You are the one that has access to our hearts. So we look to you, Lord God, our hope is in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine this, if you will. For the whole last month, you have been looking forward to what tomorrow will bring. It's Christmas Eve. All the lights in your house are dim except the twinkling of the Christmas lights that light your way towards your bed. Every inch of the fridge is packed with food that you love. 
Shiny presents with bows are piled up high in a circle around your Christmas tree. Some you can't wait to give. Some you can't wait to get. And as you lay your head down on your pillow at night, you imagine in your mind what tomorrow might look like. Maybe you see excited faces. Maybe you see sugar cookies. Maybe you see steaming pasteles. Whatever you picture, it won't be long now. Christmas will come in the morning. So now imagine yourself waking up. In your excitement, you're the first up, and so it's still dark. As you walk down the stairs, you notice that something is different about the tree. And you realize all the presents are gone. Could there be a thief in the house? You rush around and you check all of your valuables that were out in the open, but they're all still there. So confused, you walk into the frit and you walk into the kitchen. And you notice that there's dishes stacked up high in the sink. You open up the fridge and all the food that you loved, you notice it's now just scraps. The prized ham from Iowa, gone. You rush over to the stove. You open up that big pot. And you only see emptiness where pasteles were once stored. They're gone. In your confusion, you reach for your phone, trying to call someone who might know something, anything about what's going on. And as you look at your phone, you notice with disbelief the date, December 26th at 1 a.m. You slept through Christmas. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Presents unwrapped, food eaten, family gone. You missed it all. You slept through the whole thing. Can you imagine the pit that would be in your stomach? Or maybe you would feel all the air let out. Maybe you would feel frustrated. Whatever it is, you would feel incredibly disappointed. Fortunately, For most of us, this is not a real danger that we'll face. However, the real danger that all of us face in our day and age is sleeping through Christmas spiritually. To be asleep spiritually means that we are spiritually inactive, indifferent, or disengaged. And it becomes a real danger at Christmas because there's so much to draw our attention away. So many things to distract us from being spiritually active, invested, and engaged. And it becomes easy to pass through Christmas without any real impact on our relationship with God. And that's the danger that we all face. And let me add that... Yeah, I'm do this. Let me add that Christmas doesn't always look like the Coca-Cola ad or the Hallmark card scene that I just described. For many, it doesn't often or doesn't ever look like that. There have been some hard Christmases in my history, and I can imagine that I'm certainly not alone in that. But even when Christmas is hard, the danger still exists to be spiritually asleep through it. Our attention can still be drawn away. Instead of being distracted by the things that are in front of us, it's possible to become distracted by the things that are absent. 
the people that we miss, the gifts that we lack, even the food that we burned. It's easy to become so focused on the imperfections before us that Christmas passes without any real impact on our relationship with God. So Christmas is an incredible challenge because on, one, on the one hand, it's full of powerful opportunities to deepen our relationship with God, opportunities that we won't have at any other time of the year. But on the other hand, it's full of powerful distractions, probably more than any other time of the year. And so we're stuck in this conflict. And if we truly want to avoid Christmas from passing us by spiritually, if we are drawn by God's grace to seize this opportunity to deepen our relationship with Him, then our charge today is to fill our Christmas season with acts of worship. See, acts of worship get our focus right. It's not that we're supposed to be otherworldly. It's not that we're supposed to seclude ourselves from everything in this world, but that all the things of this world should grow strangely dim as we focus on the splendid radiance of who God is. Christmas is about knowing God more fully, loving Him more deeply, and trusting Him more completely by what we see of Him in the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're issuing this charge to purposefully fill our Christmas season with acts of worship. And that's why our Christmas series is entitled, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him. For the next three messages today, next week, and Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at the songs of worship that surrounded the birth of Christ in the Bible. And it's our prayer that these songs will rub off on us that they will be contagious towards us in filling our hearts with adoration for God, that they would spill over into our lives during this Christmas season and beyond. So I should add that that songs aren't the only way that we're called to worship the Lord, but it can't be denied that they are a very important way. In Scripture, we are commanded 50 times to sing to the Lord with songs of praise. So if you're not a singer before you come to Christ, after you come to Christ, somehow you are. The longest book in the entire Bible is the book of Psalms. It's a book of Hebrew songs of praise to God. And so there is a special role that songs of worship play in our lives. And I don't know if you've ever been to a musical or to a Broadway production, but the interesting thing is, is that when the characters are dialoguing with one another, they face each other. And then when it's time to sing, they face the audience. Because there's something about a song that engages us in the significance of what's happening right in that moment. It invites our participation And so the same thing happens when we look at the songs in the Bible. It's like they jump out at us and engage us to participate in the significance of that moment. The songs of the Bible not only inform us, they infect us. They call us to praise our Lord. They stir us in ways deeper than words to make their praises our own. And that is why we want to look at the songs of worship that surrounded the birth of Christ. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at Mary's song. And when I first brought this up, there was some confusion about it. And somebody said to me, you're going to preach on Amy Grant's song? Mary, did you know? And so in order to just clarify that we're not going to be doing that, I've decided to call it the Song of Mary. And so the Song of Mary is found in Luke chapter 1, verse 39 and following. And we will hear striking words of humble adoration that stir us to lift our voices to humbly adore our God. The Song of Mary issues us an invitation. It says, come, let us adore him. So please, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39. Verses 39 through 45, it's not where the song starts yet. They're kind of like the build-up leading to the song. You see, Mary didn't sing her song out of the blue. It didn't just dawn on her one day and she erupted into praise. It represents the culmination of a lot that's been happening in her life. It represents the overflow of what her heart has been pondering. Significant things that she's been mulling over. And finally, these things come to a head in her encounter with Elizabeth. In verses 39 to 45, we read, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So in verse 39, we see Mary embarking on this 90-mile trip to Elizabeth's home in the Judean hillside. And there's been a lot that's happened in a short time to lead up to this point. Just a few days ago, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary and told her that she would give birth to a child and name him Jesus and that he would be the very Son of God. He would be the promised Messiah. How can this be? Mary asked. And it wasn't that she doubted God's word. It's that her mind couldn't fathom the depths of God's plan. It's hard to imagine something outside of human experience, something that's never happened before. And so the angel told her that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and that she would conceive this baby while she was still a virgin, that God would form the baby within her. God could do this miracle because the angel had said nothing will be impossible with God. And as proof that God can do the impossible, the angel told Mary of her relative Elizabeth, who is now six months pregnant at this point. You see, Elizabeth was unable to bear children. Elizabeth was advanced in years, but God had worked a miracle in her life. And the same God who did that 
could work an even greater miracle in the life of Mary. God is the God of the impossible, and he wanted Mary to see that, so he led her to go and visit Elizabeth for herself. So Mary packs up her things and starts on her journey. Ninety miles. Can you imagine all that's going on in her mind? It must have taken a few days to get there. Just her alone, contemplating these things in her heart. What does all this mean? Then finally, in verse 40, she arrives. No sooner has she said the customary greeting than the house bursts with activity. Immediately, John the Baptist, as an unborn child inside of Elizabeth, leaps for joy at the sound of Mary's voice. But it wasn't really the voice of Mary that prompted this leap. It was the life already inside of Mary. It was the presence of the Lord in that place. And what I find so fascinating about this is that in Malachi 4, the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, it says that when the Messiah comes, people will leap at his arrival. That's like the last thing we read in the Bible, in the Old Testament, before this happens. And so John the Baptist, as an unborn child, is fulfilling this prophecy. He is setting a cue to Elizabeth to say, the Lord has arrived. His ministry to be the one to prepare the way of the Lord has already begun, and he's not even born yet. And so then the Holy Spirit right away fills Elizabeth, and she starts picking up on these things. And that's when she voices this beautiful, spirit-inspired, spoken word blessing that takes up the remainder of this section. Her blessing serves as a confirmation to Mary. When what God said would happen is indeed happening, and Mary is affirmed for taking God at His word. You see, earlier Mary had said, and these words are so striking, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And it's as if right here, God is using Elizabeth to respond to her, to say this, Well done, good and faithful servant. And if you and I long to hear those words ourselves, then we must learn, like Mary, to follow God even when it's hard. We must learn, like Mary, to take God at His word, even when it's hard. And I just want to take this moment to say that Mary is a wonderful role model for all of us. She's a wonderful figure in the Bible that, that is worthy of our respect. But while she is a role model, she is nothing, nothing, nothing close to a Redeemer. And, and I think, and I think because that there's some Mariolatry that's, that's taken place in our world, we as evangelicals have been quick to react strongly against that. And because of that, maybe we've become a bit Mary-phobic. And so what I want to encourage each one of us today is that Mary is indeed worthy of our respect. She is indeed a role model. For all of us as a servant of the Lord. 
Right in the middle of Elizabeth's blessing, there's one line that stands out. You see, there's all this blessing taking place. There's a threefold blessing. But right in the middle, Elizabeth says, And why is this granted to me that the mother of the Lord should come to me? There's this beautiful tone of humility that rings in these words. Elizabeth doesn't feel the need to compete with Mary. Elizabeth doesn't say, well, did you hear that my son is going to be the prophet of the Most High? No, she, she honors Mary. And there's this sense of her being shocked, of her being bewildered. And why is this granted to me? She's astonished that God would be involved in her life, that God would include her in this. And I think we can learn something here that lays the groundwork for our acts of worship. I don't think we can miss out on this lesson here. Her attitude says, God owes me nothing. Elizabeth is awestruck to be where she is standing. She doesn't deserve God's presence in her life. And we can learn from this because we don't deserve God's presence in our lives. Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to our own way. We turned our backs on God. We rebelled against Him. We rejected Him. And what we deserve is for God to desert us. Sin separates us from God. It severs us from His life and results in death. And that's what we deserve. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. See, that's what God owes us. That's what each of us have earned from God. We've earned His absence. The last thing we see of God in the Old Testament is this grievous scene where He lifts up His presence was dwelling in the temple, not in a full way, but in a real way. And it lifts up from the temple and fades off into the distance because the people had rejected God. And that's how the Old Testament ends. It doesn't end on a happy note. It ends on God's absence because the people had turned their backs on Him and rejected Him. And so you can imagine how Elizabeth feels after 400 years of silence, after God's absence to be standing in the presence of the Lord. And she's saying, what have I done to deserve this? What have we done to deserve this? God does not owe us His presence. He should have given us His absence, but He gave us His Son. He should have given us death, but He died for us instead. We rejected Him and He reconciled us. We spit in His face and He made that same face to shine upon us. And isn't it astonishing? I think of the prodigal son and how he treated the father with such scorn. He cut off all ties from him. He basically said to the father, you are dead to me. And yet the father did not treat him as he deserved. When the son was on the way back home, the father dropped everything and ran to him. The son deserved his absence. The father gave him his embrace. How he loves us. Oh, how He loves us. And isn't it astonishing 
Why is this granted to me? Why is this granted to you? God owes me nothing, but He has given me all things in Christ Jesus. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it astonishing? Worship erupts from a heart that does not take salvation for granted. Even if God did never did anything more for us, even if our lives were stripped down to nothing, the cross is enough to inspire our praise for the rest of eternity. That's why in Revelation we hear countless choirs singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. As we seek to fill our Christmas season and beyond with acts of worship, may we stand in awe at God's gracious presence in our lives. May we celebrate that God has not left us, but that He has come. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. For a practical application, in order to stir the embers of our praise during this Christmas season, I want to encourage you, if you're willing to write a list, and at the top of the list, write, and why is this granted to me? And then write all the different things you have because of your salvation, all the different ways that God is involved in your life. Why is this granted to me that I should be called a son of God? Why is this granted to me that all my guilt should be taken away? Why is this granted to me that I can look forward to what will happen after I die? Why is this granted to me that I've been given such a significant calling to take part in the eternal impact of this world why has this been granted to me and just let our hearts stand in awe of god and it's at this point that mary begins to sing and notice elizabeth's part in this you see mary doesn't start singing at verse 39 mary starts singing at verse 46 as one scholar put it elizabeth's exclamation of joy sparked mary's hymn of joy so elizabeth's words ignited mary's song it's almost like elizabeth is a worship leader here prompting mary's praise and i would just want to challenge us this christmas season to take it upon ourselves to prompt worship in our homes How might God use you? How might God use me to ignite praise among our family, to ignite praise among our friends this Christmas? And with that, the song of Mary breaks forth. Let's read the first half in verses 46 through 49. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The first section of this song is simply Mary reflecting on her own experience. The first line begins, my soul magnifies the Lord. And throughout the ages, the song of Mary has been known as the Magnificat, which is Latin 
for magnify. And I think this really captures the essence of what this first part is about. To magnify something obviously means to make it bigger. Like Sherlock Holmes looking for a clue. Or like that little button in Microsoft Word that you push to make the font bigger. But what does it mean to magnify the Lord? It's not possible to make God bigger or larger than He is in heaven. But it is entirely possible to make Him larger or bigger than He is in my life. It comes down to us being convinced more and more of the incomparable greatness of our God. It comes down to us expanding our view of what we know of God. That He is so great that nothing compares to Him. Mary magnifies God by the heart attitude that she shows in these verses. Look at the way she describes God. He is the one who is Savior. He is the one who is mighty. He works great things. He is holy, which means that there is none like Him. And then compare that to the way she describes herself. She is simply God's servant of a humble estate. And she clarifies that if all generations call her blessed, it's entirely because of God's doing and not hers. And it's not that she has a warped view of herself, but that she has a correct view of God. And this is the heart attitude that magnifies the Lord. It's not an underestimation of ourselves, but a proper estimation of the incomparable greatness of God. It's becoming so convinced of God's greatness that our lives are spent pointing to Him and not ourselves. It's becoming so convinced of God's greatness that there's no question who should be at the center of our lives. It's becoming so convinced of God's greatness that we worship Him simply for who He is. See, worship erupts from a heart that magnifies the Lord. All throughout Scripture, we see scenes of people praising God when they see His greatness. All throughout Scripture, praise arises from the lips of those who are struck by just the magnitude of who God is. Isaiah 6, there's these bright, shining angels who shield their faces at the burning radiance of God's glory and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. In Revelation 7, angels and living creatures fall down on their faces around the throne in heaven and they cry out the sevenfold praise, blessing and honor and blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. The 24 elders cast down their crowns before Him. Worship is the heartbeat of heaven. It never stops because they never stop beholding God's greatness. They are worshiping God around His throne right this very instant. As we seek to fill our Christmas season with acts of worship, the starting point is getting to know God more. Because the more we see God's greatness, the more we have reason to praise Him. So I want to encourage each of us to spend each day getting to know God more. 
that we might see his greatness more, that our hearts might erupt in praise to him. And what this comes down to is just filling our minds, filling our heart with scripture. A few scholars have commented on just the way that Mary's song, the song of Mary, is steeped in Scripture. It's soaked in Scripture. And maybe that's why all it took was for Elizabeth to say a little thing and then she just erupts in this praise. See, taking Scripture in is like pouring gasoline on the logs of our worship and all it takes is just a little bit to set us into this blaze of worship. When I first became a believer, I struggled with my emotions fueling my worship. So when I was emotionally up, that's when my worship was really going. But when I was emotionally down, I just felt so far from the Lord. And I'm not saying that emotions are bad. They're a part of our relationship with God. But Scripture, what we know of God, is the fuel for our praise. The more we take it in, the more we know of Him, the more we see His incomparable greatness, and our hearts can't contain themselves, and we erupt in His praise. That's where we start as we seek to fill our Christmas season with acts of worship. Mary continues in verses 50 through 55. And his mercy is those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, in the second half of this song, in in her conclusion, Mary expands from a focus on herself to a focus on all of God's people. And throughout the ages, people have wrongly taken these words as kind of like a political manifesto. There's some pretty charged words in this section. But the reality is that it's describing the nature of God's mercy. See, when you look at it closely, the word mercy appears at the very beginning. And the word mercy appears towards the very end. And that's supposed to highlight in our mind that this is like a picture frame, framing the entire section. So this is the lens from which we view these words. It comes down to God's mercy. So what it's describing to us are, are different, different contrasts. And there's specifics in these contrasts. It talks about the rich. It tra- talks about the mighty. It talks about the proud. It talks about the humble. And it talks about the hungry. But really what it's saying is that there are two categories of people in life. And these specific contrasts are just pictures of those categories. And what the categories are, are those who set their hope on the things of this world and on themselves, and those who set their hopes entirely upon God. And it's so interesting that the three pictures it paints are the very things that we struggle with in our lives and the very things that distract us at Christmas. You see, pride 
is depending on ourselves. Might is depending on power. And then riches is depending on our wealth. And when we look to those things to provide for us what only God can, we will never, ever save ourselves. And then on the other hand, there's the hungry and the humble. And that's a picture of those who realize that they have nothing to offer God. I love the quote that says, all that I offer God in my salvation is the sin that I need to be forgiven. See, it's coming to God with an open hand and saying, all, everything that I need to be saved comes from you. And so, there's this contrast here. And, and I think Jesus brings it out very well later in the book of Luke by using a parable. And the parable is in Luke chapter 18. So we're, I'm going to read that. You can turn there if you would like. It's Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what Jesus is speaking about here reflects what Mary is saying in the end of her song. That worship erupts from those who realize that their only source of salvation is Jesus Christ and that we could never save ourselves, not our power, not our money, not ourselves, and that our only hope is in Him. I want to conclude this way. I want to challenge us to not let Christmas passes by spiritually. I want to challenge us not to wake up on December 26th and realize that Christmas has already come and gone and I've been in a spiritual glaze the whole time. So I really want us today to resolve to fill our Christmas season with acts of worship. So I want to... Invite you, I want to encourage you, if you haven't taken a, a look at the Advent book that we made available online, that today is December 20, or today is December 15th, so we have exactly 10 days till Christmas. I want to encourage us to take a 10 day countdown. 
to read this Advent reading every day. We'll send out the link again tomorrow, and if you need a hard copy, let us know. I want to encourage you to begin traditions in your family if they're not already in place. Traditions of reading Scripture together, getting your hearts primed for the worship of the Lord. Traditions of taking time aside to pray with one another, remembering what all of this is about. You're taking time even singing to the Lord together, however it might sound. Just filling Christmas with acts of worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it would be so easy to try to pep talk ourselves, to try to muster up strength to fill our Christmas season with acts of worship. But what it comes down to is, Lord, we need you. We need your help. We need you to draw us to yourself every day because we are so prone to wander. We need your strength to silence all the different things that compete for our attention and look to you alone. Lord God, help us not to be distracted by the things that are in front of us. Help us to see big things as big and little things as little. Help us to see most important things as most important things and insignificant things as insignificant. Help us not to be distracted by the things in our lives that are absent. Help us just to come before you with words of adoration because you are so worthy. You could have left us, but you came to us. You alone are worthy and we thank you that you alone can bring us salvation and that's what we celebrate here. That's what we celebrate in our Christmas season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.